welcome to episode 15 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and usually Jason Roberts, but he couldn't be with us today. Um, today's guest is Corin Yu, who works for Microsoft in the Xbox division. Um, she helps to code the great game Halo and is the Halo team's principal engine programmer. Uh, welcome to the show, Corin. Oh, thank you. Um, good to talk to you, Justin. <laughs> um, so you programmed on the, the Space Shuttle project. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you were doing there. Well, uh, unlike my other projects at uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory, uh, my project at uh, Rockwell International, Long Beach, California, on behalf of the Space Shuttle Project was uh, more a computer engineering uh, focused instead of some of my more purely scientific projects. Um, we wrote Fortran 77 programs on punch cards to compute solutions for um, statics analysis and dynamics analysis. So when what, if, um, if, if you're using punch cards, when was it? Oh gosh, that was like a long, long time ago. But the other thing that was uh, very interesting too is that uh, at on the space shuttle project and also with all the companies that work on the space shuttle project is that they tend to use a computer and computer languages and also a combination of computer systems that is pretty much legacy system because those systems have been proven for a very long time, you know, a certain failure rate, a certain kind of robustness. So we tend to be using a system that would be, you know, quite a few years older than what was state of the art back then, because they, they're certainly not going to risk um, the robustness and the correctness and the safety of the project on any kind of uh, newest upgrade of computer hardware. So what so, do you think yeah, they're using was, now, on, like on current space shuttle projects? I have projects? worked on in the aerospace uh, industry for quite a while, though. It wouldn't surprise me they still use Fortran quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I would hope they have moved away from punch cards by now. <laughs> but yeah, it's... So uh, it's it's uh, yeah they are pretty uh, circumspect about the, the sele selection of computers and hardware and combination of hardware that they put together to use um, for for the project um, and they also have a really fantastic uh, code inspection system I think most of us who are engineers have you know gone through say a code review system or, or uh, you know buddy system or pair system but uh, with uh, something like the space shuttle project they have actually committees for um, code inspection in which we have a very robust system of different groups of people responsible for checking different types of defects and and a really fantastic um, um, checks and balance system to make sure that whatever we calculate would not lead to failure that, you know, lead to, you know, human loss and so on. I think it is a testament to the high quality of engineering that I was a participant of that uh, they really, ha after so many years of, uh, you know, the space shuttle project, after so many flights, uh, yep. building so many of these systems that there had not been any, you know, software failures. So, uh, and that's a very difficult thing. Has there, there, there's been no issues um, related to software, well, certainly that I'm aware of that's, that's made the headlines anyway. Well, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. But, um, you know, after, after uh, programming on the Space Shuttle project, you, you went to move on to work with um, uh, accelerator experiments at, at LINAC. Is that L-I-N? How, how do you pronounce that? It's a linear accelerator. So LINAC is special uh, for a linear accelerator. And uh, I worked at the, the LINAC that is in California. Uh, 
And uh, I also uh, uh, worked at Nas uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory, which is on the East Coast, Long Island. So is that where you're, you're basically working with a system to collide um, molecules and atoms into each other to sort of see what they do when they break up? Um, that was very much uh, what I was doing was to collide, uh, you know, various particles of different sizes at high speed against, uh, you know, a sample of, of various sizes and either known or unknown composition. And what I was doing at um, both, both laboratory was uh, basically um, improving the um, the fitting models, the mathematical fitting models of a bad, better prediction and better analysis of what the correspondence between the bombarded sample and the scatter pattern from the bombardment. You're doing and software. Were you doing the software as analysis aspect? I was doing actually the scientific analysis of it as well as the software. So with uh, the Space Shuttle project, it was a more purely software project. And with right. the uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory, it was both the scientific experiment set up, which is quite a bit of hardware as well as um, the software is actually pretty interesting. We use actually um, uh, uh, whatever languages is available. Just that the programming part isn't, uh, it, it's not say a lot of systems engineering as an right. example, the programs, but it's the mathematical models that are fairly, cha uh, fairly challenging to put together. Mm. So most of that work is actually mathematics and less of it in the actual programming itself. We probably work out the math of it uh, for a much longer duration than, say, we when we finally put it into source code. Um, so it's uh, it, it was a very mentaling. So when you started working for Microsoft and and you you'd uh, sometime in the past there was the Linux stuff and the space shuttle stuff. Then you started working for Microsoft. Uh, did you go s straight into creating 3D engines for Halo, or was there like a a bit of a path in Microsoft for you? Oh, oh de I, I was definitely doing 3D engines for a very, very long time before um, Microsoft. Um, I was a director of technology at uh, Gearbox Software, and I was a uh, director of technology at Ironstorm. And, and I've been um, programming and uh, made engines since the very beginning when there were no hardware cards and when there were the software rasterizers. I was writing one of the earliest software rasterizers back then and I wrote some of the early ones for like a publisher called GT Interactive. So it definitely has been actually a very, very long path of writing 3D engines before you know my uh, current job here. So yeah, I, I would I would say that my my career in uh, programming 3D engines um, have been more lengthy than uh, the scientific part of it. For for a layman, for someone like me who's a bit thick, can you explain <laughs> can you explain what are the fundamental components or concepts behind a 3D gaming engine? Um, well, since I've been doing 3D game engines for quite a while, um, the 3D game engines themselves have become more and more sophisticated. And with the modern 3D engine, there are so many interesting systems. You know, it can consist of an atmosphere system, system for participating media, a lighted, lighting basis management system that basically manages um, not just lighting itself, but pretty much, you know, how lighting is expressed in a way that interacts with the environment and also 
um, you know, in the world, you know, World Geometry Organization participating visibility system, occlusion, occlusion is a big deal. Seclusion, um, what's, what's that? Occlusion is uh, basically from uh, one point of view of a light, of a person or camera, what is it that they can't see because of the relative motion of other objects or animation and so on. So basically all the, all the structure that would allow for a speedy computation of occlusion effects or the data of occlusion because everything that um, we see simulated in the real world yep. is because certain light can pass through and certain light can't pass through because of all the things that are covering it or yep. you know decreasing its radiance from it so that's what the occlusion you know system huh. would be so and uh, so yeah that lots i mean and, and that's also physics simulation animation ai yeah just too many systems really it's it, it is amazing so basically we're just layering each of these i suppose what we've done is we've abstracted all the things that we think of that exist in the real world the the, the different properties of the real world and then we're layering those abstractions on top of each other to mimic the real world inside this virtual virtual 3d yeah world. we basically you know handpicked things that uh, people would recognize the most as reality uh, and, and put them into systems in the game. And then some system would pick more systems and some would pick fewer. Some would pick more sophisticated simulation and some would pick less sophisticated simulation. Um, in reality, there are just way too many things that give us cues of what makes something real. Um, and in, the, in a video game with a you know low latency response, they, they are end up with a finite number of things that you can choose to simulate very well. So yeah, we basically layer um, a system upon system of things that would give fidelity to the human eye and also the human response and also the human visual interpretation of what's going on the screen. You know, why is the character jumping or limping this way? When I do this in this world, you know, this part of the building falls apart and, you know, this creature, you know, reacts to my violence and decides, you know, to um, hide from me and then get his friends and come and fight me. All of those things are basically picking aspects of what really happened in the real, well, in as real as the science fiction. Well, because of course you've, got the, you've yeah. got the AI on top of it as well. I mean, apart from yeah. rendering the experience, you also have, uh, you know, something controls how everything moves and what it does, I guess. That's that's another yeah. thing. Yes. Yes, so AI pay, plays a really big part, and uh, animation actually plays a very big part, and simulation does, too. It, it's the... Um, how a human brain reacts to what is real is so subtle and so subconscious that, um, you know, AI of... Uh, in a lot of ways, the some of AI is very broad strokes, which is there. If someone's attacked, they would defend themselves. But on a really subtle level, there's a lot of things. It's like if you know there is, uh, you know, a bullet that is about to hit this creature. How does this this creature avoid a bullet in a certain way? Th those sort of behaviors, like you, you can recognize instantly if somebody is just drawing it and drawing it wrong, versus if. You know, oh yeah, I can I can believe this alien creature really is you know dodging my bullet. This this feels real for me. You can't express it. You may not have the physics background to explain why this looks real to you and that doesn't. And it's kind of our job to write the mathematical equation to give this reality to you that looks as much as what you would expect as possible. Well, because if basically the the long and the short of it is, if you notice it, that means 
it doesn't look real. Yes. <laughs> so so all the so. all the stuff that you don't notice is the stuff that you guys have done a good job on. Yeah, well, it, it, that's a very interesting thing with um, 3D engines too, is that the weakest link is always the, the part of the edge cases where it is the most challenging to get the greatest fidelity. And what I mean by that is that um, with lighting and with sim when with physics, you, you know, you do your absolute best to, you know, create the highest quality, the highest precision, you know, the greatest number of, you know, simulation, but they're just the, the thing that people would notice would be when it breaks, when you somehow like everything look really fantastic. And then over in this one corner, I am noticing that it's yeah. got this kind of lighting, but not that kind. Or like all the animation is looking fantastic when everything is all scripted. But as soon as there was this really tough case where, you know, a creature need, needs to navigate around this weird little little corner and he trips and he doesn't trip at just the right way that I expect him to now that breaks you know my reality so it's always the weakest link is always the the edge case where it doesn't do as well as the rest of the game or as the rest of the screen that breaks the reality for the player let me ask you something if if um well, actually what I want to say is how much time uh do you guys uh, the halo team in general how much time do you spend uh, sort of knee deep in machine code uh versus i don't know compiling uh, c code versus using uh tools you know 4gl tools to like place things into your into the world that is a very interesting question, and uh, I think I'd like to break it into two or three separate questions. So the first question I want to answer is, how often do I, I write in machine code? And I actually use write, uh, machine code quite a bit because I do a lot of GPU programming, and then with GPU, you're basically addressing you know, a specific chip in the fastest, most efficient way possible. And um, we do have you know, higher level shader language, which you know, I do write quite a bit of, but whenever I debug it, you know that in a debugger, you can step into you know, the, the assembly machine code, or you can you know, step through it in you know, higher language. I, my daily work, I always step into any code I write into the machine code anyway, because I am in fact concerned about you know one one set of instruction ordering versus another. You know, uh, uh, this particular instruction is stalling for data. Uh, or this particular instruction is actually wait, waiting for constants that haven't uploaded yet. I mean, all of these things I describe are extremely low level. You know bytes of micro code <laughs> you know, oh, that's good so, so you're totally getting into the optimization of it like you're you're yeah. sort of you're not allowing you're like you're not allowing a, a level of abstraction to get in your way i mean you really are getting right into the the knee the, the nuts and bolts of the machine code that's impressive how many like people are involved at the sort of physics level versus the artwork creating the world type level is that is, is it a, a really big team creating all the artwork and the voices and the characters and the plot lines versus the actual core team doing the physics and the engine um, we certainly see a um a, a triangle there where it's a, there's a lot more people that need to create the levels and uh versus the people who, who make the program and do that. And even, and then within the programming of it, there are definitely a lot more people that basically deal with the tool set 
then there are people that, for example, deal with the core of what the engine does once all the data is laid, uh, loaded in and how it's rasterized and rendered into the screen. So, uh, so yeah, definitely a lot more content creation people than engineers. And then with, within the engineering group, definitely a lot more engineering working on a higher level, like you said, through the what kind of So what kind of tools would the content creation people use? Um, we want we want the content creation people to basically have um, as much a uh, high end movie level tool as possible. So what we do is basically um, have a kind of tool pipeline that would allow people to use um, advanced programs like Maya and so on, what the film studio use. Um, so to them, they are uh, well. We want to. That's not entirely true. We want to uh, inert them. Uh, um, uh, fr uh, from them as much as possible, uh, engine intricacies, but I mean, things that happens in real time, of course, that there are things that have to deal with. For one thing, in a movie, they don't necessarily have to deal with every possible uh, encounter permutation of how their model would be viewed versus in, the, in a video game they do. The, 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 I mean, the, the tagging or the metadata system associated with the asset will be a huge difference between a movie and a game. In a movie, they, ha they would ha need a little bit of metadata meta for assets um, because, but because fundamentally a video game, I mean, a, a movie is still very linear. A video game is very nonlinear. Anything can happen with anything to anything at different points. So there is a lot of carrying and propagation of metadata with assets. So, so, um, Pro uh, high-end software like Maya has some pretty good metadata support, or they try to, because the film industry is beginning to use that now. But at the at the same time, it is really not on the level that a video game does. So we we do a combination of you know something like Maya with with our own internal 3D engine uh, editor layout to uh, allow the designers to hook up. The metadata in a way that is most convenient to them and there's quite a bit that they do that with okay uh let me ask another question which is um i mean i'm curious about the the virtual reality aspect of halo i mean to me halo totally lends itself to virtual reality and i'm wondering you know how important do you think virtual reality is to halo's future do you think that there will be a time where people you know most most players of halo will actually have you know uh a fully immersive experience with a virtual reality helmet and uh, motion sensors, etc. I guess that kind of kind of also leads to the question of how immersive I think the current hardware virtual reality is, and um, I I think that uh, at this current stage of hardware, that our players would be better served by us uh, decreasing latency as much as possible um, with you know, a 3D screen, the, um, because what, what we've experienced that breaks immersion is um, the uh, long time of waiting between a player does an action versus the universe and the world and other creatures react to them. Or, or the disconnect, you know, when they, I mean, I, I, um, I've, I've looked at quite a bit of virtual reality system and, and the, um, to be honest, I, I think the latency is not very acceptable to really give people and immersion experience it's you know the and and then in terms of things where you know things are strapped onto someone's head in a lot of ways um, Microsoft as a company we're trying to get away from 
uh, things that decreases immersion because people are using, you know, devices or input devices that um, make them break away from the feeling they're playing a game or using a piece of hardware. They're talking about the, Project Intel. Talking about Project <laughs> yeah. Natal, yeah. I mean, that yeah. sort of thing, as an example. So I, 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 in some ways, I think the current hardware of virtual reality is actually getting away from immersion versus increasing it. I think we are, uh, we're very much interested in immersion, but not necessarily a specific piece of hardware to lead us to that immersion. Um, so, and, and I guess what I find interesting is whenever people think of virtual reality, they really think of like, you know, the helmet or the stereoscopic and so on. And, and I don't know, um, if people realize that in a lot of ways, um, stereoscopic actually breaks away from immersion while adding a really great part to it. It really adds the depth component and the depth component does, you know, really help with immersion quite a bit, but it is that string they put on um, subconsciously, they put on the the player or the viewer's eyes, you know, where they, you know, artificially um, force the spacing of the eyeballs to be farther away than they naturally are. I mean, you, uh, it's really funny when you go watch uh, a 3D movie or, or play a game that was that stereoscopic 3D, you, you feel more about that, oh my God, I am doing this 3D thing versus I'm really playing this game. And part of it, you're thinking maybe they're just exaggerating the death, but that's not all of it. What you're really feeling is that your um, the biofeedback of your eyeballs, feeling that those eyeballs are not doing something natural. And, and and I think those sort of subconscious feeling, just like the subconscious feeling of I press a uh, I press a button on my joypad and I'm just not firing right away, and it's it's not even something I can detect, but my body can feel it. I think those sort of things, you know, breaks immersion quite a bit. So until I start seeing virtual reality as something that adds immersion versus taking away from it. Um, you know that the the part that we will want to participate participate in would not be, for example, the current generation of devices of virtual reality. That's that's really interesting. Um, one one thing that that myself and Jason have spoken about a bit is the fact that software is really moving to the web, really moving to the browser, and there's you know we we think the future is is that you know the desktop is going to be on the browser it's not just us i mean that's just the, that's just the trend but what i'm wondering is do you think that games like halo are ever going to be on the browser do you think that it's you know we're ever going to reach a point where an you know an xbox isn't necessarily required <laughs> you know you just go on the web with whatever computer you have and and then you have a game like halo the experience that we feel compelled you know for the video game audience is that of, of immersion. And to us, that immersion would be a very realistic portrayal of the world they're immersed in. It would be a very fast response to everything they're doing, running, shooting. And again, I'm not seeing the current technology of, you know, browser-based, you know, 3D visual quality and browser-based um, interactivity to be on a level that doesn't completely take away from that immersion. So in terms of a, a complete fidelity of a 3D action game on the internet browser, I think that that is something that actually takes away from what the player would expect rather than giving them to it. At the same time, um, I think um, the 
internet and a browser-based world does play a larger and larger part to players and non-players alike. Um, and I mean, also, you know, the Xbox Live um, component of it, which is it's still on a set-top, but you know, now you're not so much just in the game, but there's just this, this television that is there and you're not in the middle of a game. Um, I, I think uh, we we need to, and we do, and we we are planning to support um, some way to continue to participate in our video game universe in all of these other different interfaces and devices, but not necessarily some in a form that is the exact duplicate of a, you know a three D action game with really beautiful graphics, because it's just the hardware is just not at a level. That you to know, support we, it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I guess my, that. with my question, I'm sort of thinking. I, I, but you know, I, I, but in it, ten years' time, like, do you think that 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 could be? Yeah, it's uh, it, it really comes back to what the technology can support. But I'm not even thinking. I mean, ten years' time. I'm talking about probably in the present time and in the next, you know, couple of years, we're go we're we are going to have a much richer experience for people, you know, in the Halo universe. Um, uh, that is in, for example, the, the internet environment. Um, uh, our studio had already announced a Halo Waypoint project. And uh, Waypoint is something that is on the set top. But it is an example in which, you know, we uh, are expanding uh, how the people experience our universe and our game, but not necessarily just be playing our games at the same time. So. It's it's something that we're not thinking about t only ten years out. We're thinking about right now. Right now, we are building a huge amount uh, of of I, w I don't want to say internet browser because that's that's very um, you know domain specific. I want to say what if it's not, what if it's on the phone? What if it's on on the Xbox? But you're not playing the game. You know that overall life world, that Xbox life world, is expanding. The many clients. Of, yeah, to um, to a lot of people you know, experiencing our games and we are going to um, bring a lot of extra experiences on this sort of life environment while they're not playing our game. And that, that's, got, that's happening very, very soon. This is not something that's out in 10 years. At, at the moment, uh, working in Microsoft, it would appear that uh, you're sort of very involved in the corporate ladder over entrepreneurial endeavors. And I was just wondering, you know, what you thought about that, whether you were interested in any way in the future getting into stuff that was more entrepreneurial. Just just what, what are your general thoughts about that? I've always taken jobs in which there's a huge entrepreneurial element to it. Um, I wouldn't really want to be in a job where it is just doing, um, you know, an existing project in an existing way. And this is a safe job. You'll be paid um, if you take risk. Um, then your risks are covered. I mean, I've never taken jobs that are like that. And my current job is not like that at all. The, the, it, it's huge risk, huge reward. Um, it's, a, it's a great deal of um, anticipation for, you know, success. It's a great, great deal of demand for a very high quality level of work. That, and um, it's not at all a thing where, okay, I got a big job at a big company. I ship, you know, yet another version of of this thing and it doesn't matter 
whether or not um, it innovates or doesn't innovate. So I, I would say that my current job is very, very entrepreneurial. I would say our studio is very, very entrepreneurial. It has all the qualities of a startup, pretty much. Uh, we have all the dangers, all the challenges, all the things we have to overcome. Not all the dangers, not all the dangers, because <laughs> Microsoft, you know, you're funded by Microsoft and, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of startups don't have that, that level of funds. Well, it, Microsoft, um, the, the, uh, I think of different big companies decide to manage things very differently. Microsoft managed its subdivision in a way that actually is, uh, you know, dangerous, but dangerous in a very agile way. Um, the demand for success is, is very high for, and the expectation of success is very high for each of the subgroups. Pretty much each of the subgroups are like, um, you know, tiny little startups that have to prove itself. And if it doesn't prove itself, there are consequences. <laughs> and and if it does, it has huge rewards. Uh, it is it, the reward, the 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 um, studio reward structure as well as the personal reward structure is very very entrepreneurial <laughs> in our company. I see. So is it is it almost like a like a profit share situation kind of thing? It's uh, it's it's very much so. They've built in a lot of incentive. For, for us as a studio to want to be a successful studio. They also build in a, in, in a lot of, it wouldn't be an explicit system, but for what I can observe in my career at Microsoft, that Microsoft is, is very into R&D, it's very into uh, incubating very novel ideas that uh, are very worthy of investigating. And then at the same time, they are they're also very quick to, you know, decide on this thing is really doing great. This thing is not doing great and we really ought to do something about it. There, there really isn't a lot of coasting element, a lot of like, oh gosh, um, I'm in the safe job in the safe department. They're, they don't really do a lot of that at all. And, and, that's, and that's one of the things I really do like about it is that fluidity. There's a huge amount of fluidity fluidity in Microsoft. And they very much mimic that fluidity, you know, based on the real economic world of the survival of startups. And so I, I think it's more like a, a collection of successful, innovative teams versus uh, something where those teams can feel always completely comfortable without innovating and without, you know, having proofs of great success. In, a reasonable amount of time. So yeah, I, I I think what I have chosen is very much an entrepreneurial endeavor. <laughs> well, I suppose the only difference is is you know true ownership. So you know uh, being a being a a fully blown entrepreneur, you know you you really have the potential to completely own something. Well, I suppose you you can never really completely own it because you've got investors and they have their percentage. So. Maybe it, maybe it is really similar. That's it's, interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's that, for for a company that's so big, that's a very in, innovative way of approaching things. But I'm sure that 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 can't be true of something like Office. You know. Uh, I haven't worked that's like in legacy. Office, so I can't I can't speak for Office. <laughs> but uh, yeah. with uh, with with my understanding of, of us is I mean, with my understanding of what um, our customers expect of us too. I expect that you mm. know we we have to do a fantastic job. We have to you know, uh, provide not just what they expect, but a lot more what they don't expect. It's, yeah, I think our customer expect us to function as a very entrepreneurial, you know, very successful startup and nothing less than that. So it's, uh, I, I feel, I, I feel the thrill of entrepreneurship yeah. with this. I also, yeah, definitely feel the pressure of entrepreneurship with this as well too. 
So um, apart from coding games, uh, what other tele technology most interests you and why? Well, in the past, um, I mean, I have uh, worked in and interested in nuclear physics and uh, also in aerospace. And currently, um, uh, the other technology that I'm really um, interested in is actually um, biochemistry and um, it's uh, and it, they've, they've done a lot of really fascinating um, work that really dovetails into uh, my our expertise my expertise so a, um, a lot of recent advances in biomedicine and um, uh, biochemistry has been data-based computational based uh, and uh, and also geometry based too which I think is really fun part which is like constructing uh, um, uh, molecules in a specific shape because the 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 chemical layout of these particular you know, um, atoms and molecules demand that they be shaped in this way so uh, I've been I've been following up on it I've been writing software in it, uh, it apparently um, it only cost them um, eight cents to purchase a single uh, DNA base pair so it is very possible to become a hobbyist project. Uh, and, and I remember how I got myself into nuclear physics and the very, very pioneering early stages of 3D engines anyway. And to me, nanobots and biomedicine is at the stage where um, I don't see the barrier between someone who just wants to do this, you know, on their own dime, you know, with their own resources versus you know, going through the corporation, working for a big corporation of doing that. It's the the uh, the resources and technology, I think, has opened up to the point where it just seems fascinating not to step into it in a small way, in a big way. Well, now that, you know, I, I have this... Uh, a really time-consuming job at Microsoft. I don't really have as much time to uh, spend in that, but, but yeah, it's like if I if I have more time, I definitely want to be, you know, designing and building nanobots. And and uh, right now, I kind of satisfy the curiosity a little bit by you know writing computer program simulations for things. But what I really want to do is like, well, wouldn't it be great, you know? And and I mean, we we already know that at this point, like physical robots, that's very much open up to general public. This is something that all of us can do now. All of us can build a robot now. And and it wasn't true back then. Um, well, uh, it was a more um, specialized kind of work because there weren't as many, you know, pre-built, you know, robot parts or something. Um, you, you mean, they're, they're motors and they're servo motors and so on. So there's still like shortcuts and they're, they're definitely, uh, you know, uh, burnable, um, pro uh, programmable um, chips that you can you can buy, but now um, you know robots uh, building is just this sort of thing that anybody can do, and I'm I'm really looking forward to a time when people can just build their own nanobots and people can just build their own DNA molecules. I think that would be that would be really really fun thing to do. Now of course they have to worry about like the the safety of it likely and the probably there are social and political ramifications that as a nerd, as a geek a scientist, I didn't think about as much of. But just the pure, you know, scientific aspect of it to just kind of open up nanobot design and, and biomedicine design to the general public. I think that that could be really fun. That would be a really fun thing to do. Lauren, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. It's been great to, to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And um, you've just got some really interesting stuff to talk about there. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Justin. Thank you.